please find Romans chapter 1. We've been really laying some foundational truths. Make sure we have the right uh, premises in mind here. So we're kind of going a little slow in the beginning of the book here. I think we'll speed up eventually. Let me pray with you just for a moment, please. Almighty God of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, God who has called the prophets and the apostles to speak and make your will understood and known among men, O God. Help us to see. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to concentrate that our ears and minds would not let the seed of your word be snatched away from our hearts. O God, accomplish your work in and among us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been taking time to make sure we have some good understanding of Paul and his apostleship, Paul's being a slave, a doulos, the Lord Jesus Christ, how it is he has been separated under the gospel, horizoned under the gospel, is the word there, kind of a picturesque word, understanding his duty and his service in regards to the gospel, God's gospel, which was promised in the past by the prophets, some ideas that we've looked at and investigated, gospel concerning the Son of God, Jesus our Lord, and and last week we were contemplating, we were studying the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, according to David, that is, he is in the line of, or a seed of David according to the flesh, and then also declared to be the Son of God according to the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. And one of the telling things we were looking at last week was in Matthew chapter 22. You remember the Lord Jesus posed a question to the Pharisees and He asked them, whose son is the Christ? And they knew the answer. They knew scripture. They they were able to say very, very clearly and confidently back to the Lord Jesus. He is David's son. And then the Lord Jesus asked them, why does David then call him Lord? How did they answer? They actually answered no words. They, they, They could not really figure out how it is that the great king of Israel, whose seed eventually would come and be born and rule forever, they could not quite grasp why it is that in Psalm 110, David calls him Lord. What did ultimately that mean? What did it mean that the Messiah son of David would have David call him Lord. What did that ultimately mean? That ultimately means that he is Lord. He is God. He is master. The word in the Greek is an interesting word. Kurios is this word Lord and it means Lord. It means master. And the implication that the Lord Jesus made in in bringing these things to light for these guys is if you know who the Messiah is, you know he is the eternal reigning one on the throne of David. He is man and he is God. He is me. And this was something the Pharisees had a hard time understanding. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is master. 
Well, today I'm going to begin reading with you at verse 1. We will read through verse 6, and then we're primarily going to be uh, studying verse 5. Let me read with you 1 through 6. Paul, a bondservant, a doulos of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So our subheading here as we begin would be grace, man's greatest need. Grace, man's greatest need. Verse 5 says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. So this is through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given favor. Favor is one nuance of the word grace. He has given favor and apostleship. And so I want to think with you for a moment about favor for the really and truly lost. As we think about the grace of God and the lost, one of the things that I think maybe we've begun to realize in these years is that the lost don't know they're lost. They don't know they're lost. And it seems to me, as I think it probably maybe seems to you, that the natural mind, the the mind and the heart and the soul of the lost operates in a fog of lostness. They just kind of, they live in this world. They don't know what they can't see. They don't know what they don't know. The Lord Jesus preached and in Matthew 13, 13 and 14 is one little tiny snippet of, of the Lord's speaking to this lostness. What is this fog like? And the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 13, 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables. You remember why the Lord Jesus speaks and teaches in parables? He says, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing, you will hear and will not understand. Isaiah said this would be the nature of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Seeing, you will see and not perceive. The lost live in a fog. Obviously, when you're in the the fog, your eyes see. You even hear, but it's deceptive what you see and what you hear. Your bearings are just lost. How lost is the lost? Why is the lost one lost? Why don't they see? Why don't they hear? Why is the seeing one blind and why is the hearing one deaf? They're lost. They're really, really lost. All of their hearing, the the majority of those who listen to the Lord Jesus and see the works that he would do, don't lead to understanding. It actually leads to anger. leads to denial. It leads to excuses. And they're spiritually blind and deaf. And I believe it's obvious that this is true of of all men who have ever lived on earth. They're they're spiritually blind. We know eventually in Romans, not too much later in Romans, the pronouncement will be 
that none have sought him, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the pronouncement and, and the, the verdict in Romans gets more and more and more distinct as we move through this. But, but here as we're just contemplating for a minute the lostness of the lost. Everybody in the world is lost. Everybody in the world sees and hears with fog. How blind, how deaf. This is pretty, this is pretty terrible to consider because if the blindness isn't cured... Or if the deafness is not cured, what is their end? You already know the answer, but just to think about it in the starkness of what it means to never learn to see what you can't see, to never learn to hear what you can't hear, means you get to the end of these days and all of the religious thinking that, that you have created in your own little world, you get to the King of Kings and you get to the Lord of Lords. And you may even say something like, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we prophesy in your name? And what does he say? I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. If the deaf don't come to hear and if the blind don't come to see, what is the end really like? It's, it's, it's a terror, brothers and sisters. It's, it's an awful thing to realize how lost the lost are. It's an amazing thing to realize. Isn't it amazing that in the, in the Lord's speaking of these things, seeing and hearing, the seeing and hearing deficit, by and large, isn't a sickness. In other words, when the Lord, in the, in the little parable here, is speaking and then in, in the real healings that he does on several occasions by giving sight to the blind or giving hearing to the deaf, isn't it interesting that this is not normally a sickness that you take a pill for? Why are people normally blind or why are people normally deaf? Well, the ones who are born that way have a birth defect and they can't see. How do you treat it? How do you treat somebody who's born blind? You give them a cane. You give them a dog and you teach them to follow the dog. You can't cure it. How do you cure someone who's born deaf? Isn't it interesting to you? Have you ever heard of an eye transplant where someone was born blind and they plant some new eyes in their head? Have you ever heard of that happening? I wonder why. Why does the Lord Jesus use this picture so that men can try to contemplate the unseeingness of the blind and the unhearing of the deaf. You don't get ear transplants and you don't get eye transplants. You know why? It's too hard. We don't know how to transplant them. You can't get a new eyeball and plug it in. And so this, this defect pointed out by the Lord explaining the blindness of the blind and the deafness of the deaf is really the worst kind of sickness to have because there's no treatment that we know how to work, right? We don't know how to fix it. It's not, it's not 10 days of amoxicillin. So what does the blind do? What does the deaf do? The seeing and this hearing is mandatory. If, if the blind don't learn to see and if the deaf don't become hearers, they're lost. They will never see the joys of heaven. They will never grasp the warnings and the offer of hope by the Savior. They'll never get it. The defect is terminal. So what opens the eyes and what opens the ears? What creates perceiving for salvation? Ephesians 2. Go to Ephesians 2 with me. We'll end up back here in Romans, probably.
Ephesians 2, verse 4. Remember verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1, what does it talk about? The one who was dead. Now there's another terminal sickness, isn't it? I've been speaking about the one who can't see and the one who can't hear. Here's a worse one. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Now look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The dead who are made alive, you and I are allowed to see what, what is the catalyst, what is the thing that takes the thing that is terminal and becomes life. Grace. The grace of God is highlighted right here. When we were dead, we're made alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. <coughs> Keep reading. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace, the grace of God in Christ, takes the deaf, takes the blind, takes the dead, and restores sight, restores Hearing restores life. That that stands between a man and his hope of eternal life is changed by the grace of God. Two eight, Ephesians two eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The saved, the saved are the only ones who can perceive and begin to grasp the impossible condition of favor that they have before God. That is, if you can see and if you can hear or if you have life, if you've been given life in Christ, then you are the only one who can even begin to perceive what has changed. You're the only one who can begin to fathom the honor that has been given to you. The, the, the change of your station from on your way to eternal hell to the status of a favored son to the status of being a brother with honor with Christ, only those who have been saved can begin to perceive this. You, you can't even begin to comprehend the gulf that has been crossed, the changes that have been made for you. God's grace is the thing that takes the dead and the blind and the deaf and makes you awake to the perils of death and hell that makes you comprehend the offer of righteousness and forgiveness in Christ. The grace of God is the only thing that can take somebody out of that path of death and offer them life. God's grace, as we perceive even little bits of it, should cause you to increase in your worship Increase in your thankfulness. Increase in your awe of the kindness and the goodness of God. And so what we see here in Romans verse 5, through him, it says we have received grace and apostleship. When he, when he makes this reference to grace and apostleship, the, the, the mountain of 
truth and reality of what grace has achieved in those who can even understand what Paul is saying here, they're also told that by God's grace or through him we've received grace and apostleship. Apostleship is, is, is right here on the hip of grace. And I, I want you to try to concentrate with me here as we contemplate the, the connection here between grace and apostleship here for a minute. Because it's a little bit uncanny. It's a little bit uh, counterintuitive here. Apostle means one who has been sent out with orders. An apostle is, is a messenger. An apostle is a delegate. So these, these words that, that kind of frame the meaning of, of what and who an apostle is, we should understand that God's grace is involved in the dispatching of the apostle. God's grace is involved in the existence of the apostle. And what it says in our passage here is, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. They were messengers of Christ. The apostles were messengers sent to do his bidding, which we see in this little phrase here, for Obedience to the faith. Apostles speak. Apostles serve. Apostles teach. They're under this mandate. They're under a stewardship. Now, something I I don't have a, a, a clear window into the translator's mind, but both the King James and the New King James very clearly say obedience of the faith. Obedience of the faith, but in the in the original text, even in the in the Textus Receptus, the the original language that we would look to to see what what words are there in the Greek, they don't have the word the there. So it says obedience of faith. So the apostles. Now let me let me go back into uh, Romans five. Through him we have received grace and apostleship. For obedience of faith. For obedience of faith. So we're going to, at the end of the next thought here, we're going to fill out what obedience of faith is. But I want you to think about Christ's grace through apostles. Because when you and I think about grace... you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when we think about grace, I think we normally think about not getting in trouble when we deserve it. Normally, when you think about how grace works on you or works in your benefit, it's 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 being the recipient of something nicer than you thought it was going to be. Somehow, favor has come to you, and, and you would say, well, that was gracious of them maybe you spoke in a in a mean or a foul way and the person you offended actually treated you like you didn't offend them and they they didn't take offense and you're like oh that was gracious of them they 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 were kind to me and and I didn't deserve that kindness so that's how we're used to to perceiving this idea of grace grace is 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 relief it's lesser and we feel like wow that was nice i was favored and i didn't expect it grace is something that sinners can easily presume upon a person who has become born again can presume upon grace because we might very often find ourselves thinking or speaking or acting in an ungodly way. We will have thoughts that, that are not God's thoughts. We're acting like carnal men or, or carnal women or like childish people at times. For example, sometimes in your selfishness, you don't really want to do the dishes and you're kind of happy to let the eager beaver doing the dishes do them and you're not going to do it. Or 
Maybe you don't want to take out the trash. Or maybe you speak rashly and you speak unkindly or think rashly and unkindly. Christians deal with these kind of thoughts. We deal with self-elevating thoughts as well. We, we see ourselves as superior to others at times and, and put others down in our minds. And grace, our, our realization that God is a gracious God, our knowledge of the existence of grace sometimes will cause you to pad yourself. You, you'll, you'll insulate yourself from the wrongness of your wrong. In other words, knowing that grace exists makes us feel a little less bad about being sinful people with our mouths and with our minds and with our actions. It takes some of the sting of it off because we know, we feel confident that God will forgive us. Later on in Romans chapter 6, Paul asks a question along these lines. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. Why would he even say that? Well, because you get used to being insulated and padded by grace so that you take little liberties with your mind and with your mouth and with your life. That Paul warns us against this. He, in, in a sense, there in Romans 6 says, don't do it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace is an amazing aspect. It's an amazing reality of God's nature and His person. It is a glorious truth about the nature of God. And it helps us understand, in part, why the wrath of God might be diverted away from us. He is a gracious God. He's willing to forgive you and I of our sins. It is an amazing reality of God. We love the grace of God. And we need to worship Him for His grace. And we need to take care that we might never presume upon His grace. Don't be presumptuous about the grace of God. But as we'll see, and what I would like you to see here, is grace isn't simply about getting favor that will give you relief from the wrath of God. Grace is not only an explanation as to why God's wrath isn't going to be unleashed on you someday. Grace is here in our passage here, portrayed in an interesting light. It says, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, the apostles, we know, are Christ's messengers. They're his delegates. They're the writers of Scripture. They are the New Testament prophets. They are given in this same grace. The, the existence and the, and, and the work and the ministry of these New Testament prophets are, are an aspect of God's Grace, and it seems almost an unnatural pair. So we see God's favor towards those he loves. We understand that that comes with honors, honors of sonship, honors of eternal life, honors of reward. We see that salvation comes with these kinds of things. Like, for example, when the prodigal son comes home, his father is pleased and he welcomes him with love and he prepares a feast for the son who is returning home. This is the kind of thing you and I picture in regards to God's grace. This richness and this kindness. But here in our, in our little phrase here in verse 5, God's grace comes with apostleship. The God that we know is gracious, has given apostleship in his grace. And so if the Christian's response to grace is gratitude and worship and love of the Savior, 
put yourself in the shoes of the prodigal who comes home and, and your dad welcomes you home, although you've squandered you know, 50% of the family wealth and you've shamed your family and, and you come home and the father welcomes you home and he shows you love openly. That, that's the aspect of grace that we, that we love and we, we look forward to. And if our response to that is worship and love, what is the Christian response to apostleship? What is your response to apostleship? Through him, we have received grace and apostleship. The apostles are a gracious gift of God. And I want to help you understand the solution to this. I want to help you understand the reality of this truth. God's grace has resulted in him giving to his children. Look at Ephesians 4.11. We've looked at the passage numerous times in these years. God's love gave what in Ephesians 4.11? And he gave. Why does he give? He gives because he's gracious. He gives because he loves. He gave some apostles, some prophets. Why did he give? Why is the grace of God giving this gift for equipping of the saints? Why does he extend his love in this way? Why does he show his grace in apostleship? For equipping the saints for the works of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So I want you to see that the God of grace who gives unmerited favor. That's one of the favorite definitions of grace in the New Testament. He gives unmerited favor to his redeemed. Here he shows his favor in this unexpected way. To me, it was an unexpected way. He gave the Christian who has been baptized into the church. That means every person who's been born again has been placed into the body of Christ. Baptism is a picture of your death with the Lord Jesus, and it is a picture of us being placed into Christ. He placed the Christian into his church, and he gave them apostles. Why is the unmerited favor of God shown in this way? Why does the unmerited favor of God Show his grace has given you apostles. Well, put very simply, it's because the born again, and I want you to think hard on this, the born again will spend the rest of your life learning and remembering his will. You will spend the rest of your life learning and remembering his will. Isn't that what Romans chapter 12 says? Romans is almost done at Romans 12. And what does he say at the beginning of Romans chapter 12? What does he say? Let's look there. Obviously, it's only a few pages away here from Romans chapter 1. And if we keep going at this pace, we'll be there in about five years. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, listen to what he says. By the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What do do we do as a living sacrifice? What's the point? What does that mean? He says, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's the word for ministry. Now, Romans chapter 12 doesn't not know Ephesians 4 exists. So this is within the context of a church, which is a result of systematic theology. In other words, the local church is where this happens. Or, let me say it in another other words. Romans chapter 12 needs you to belong in a local congregation in order for Ephesians chapter 4 to be taking place. It was he who gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip the saints. You don't do Romans chapter 12 without Ephesians chapter 4. The local congregation is where this is worked out. So then he says in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God. You will spend the rest of your Christian life learning and remembering the will of God. How does God provide for that? By His grace, He has given you apostles. It is His gracious work for you to give you apostles that you would know and you would remember the will of God. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3.6 with me. Second Thessalonians 3.6 We looked at this sometime in the last four or five weeks. He says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. The us is the apostles. The apostles reveal the will of God. How do you know that you are not to spend time and have fellowship with the unruly one? How do you know that? The apostles tell you. Why does he tell you that? He's teaching you how to live a godly life. He's teaching you how to be protected from deception and how to be protected from ungodly living. The Christian has shown God's favor by corralling you away from your natural instincts. Your natural instincts will, will guide you and lead you down this road. And the apostles will come and they will teach you don't walk according to your wisdom don't walk in your own light don't walk in your own truth walk in the light of Christ by learning and listening to the teaching of the apostles he corrects you and he protects you and he uses you by your receiving from the apostles this is a work of God's grace for the Christian now, back here in the, in the passage, as I said, grace and apostleship for obedience of faith, this phrase of faith doesn't have the word the in it because of the noun form that it's in. In other words, the word the isn't in there, and the word is in a form that in English, for us to understand what is called a genitive, and uh, we don't need to say much more than, than it's. if we can see Greek, we're like, oh, that word's in the genitive. That means there is an of in front of it. Usually, they just write it in English for us, and we can see of faith in this case. So it's in the genitive. That means almost like obedience is a possession of faith in this case. Obedience is a possession of of faith. Faith has what this thing is talking about. Faith has obedience. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. I'll show you a picture of how these two words often relate to one another. Deuteronomy chapter 9 at verse 22. And we see this throughout the New Testament as well. This particular uh, passage gives us a good look at understanding what it means that we've received grace and apostleship for obedience of faith. So now we see how it is that the apostles themselves are servants of Christ and servants to the Christians. Deuteronomy 9 says, verse 22, Also at Tabera and Massah and Kibroth Hatavah you provoked the Lord to wrath. Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. So the Lord had said, Go up and possess the land I've given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you did not believe him nor obey his voice. 
So we see this interesting relationship that exists throughout Scripture between faith and obedience. And then look at verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from that or from the day that I knew you. Now let me flip this around. If these ones believed, if they had faith, what would they have done? In other words, this says they didn't have that. What would they have done if they believed? They would have gone up. They would have taken the land. They, 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 they would have done what the Lord said based on what they believed. But instead it says they didn't believe him nor obey his voice. What does the obedience of faith look like in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 22 to 24? What does the obedience of faith look like? It looks like a people who heard God say, I'm giving you this land. Go and take it and possess it. And they said, okay, let's go have it. That's what obedience of faith looks like. Faith has obedience. Because faith believes the one who spoke. Faith believes the terms of the promise. And so it acts accordingly. Look at Hebrews 11. Look at a couple more examples here in Hebrews 11. Through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience of faith. And we'll work on the last part of that passage next week. But Hebrews 11 it lists a number of examples of faith and I'm going to say is triumphing over unbelief. In other words, if we read through these carefully and thoughtfully, you in each case could say this is what faith looks like and this is what unbelief looks like in each one of these examples. So you can also say this is what obedience of faith looks like and this is what obedience of unbelief looks like. Think about that for a second. That's going to help us isolate our understanding of this phrase for obedience of faith. There, or in other words, obedience of faith looks like a real thing. It's a thing. What does obedience of unbelief look like? And to crystallize it in Deuteronomy 9, which is where we were at a second ago, what does the obedience of unbelief look like? We're not going up into the land God promised us. That is what the obedience of unbelief looks like. We do what we believe. We don't do what God says we are to believe. Hebrews 11.1 1. Faith is the substance of the things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, just real quickly, look up at verse 39. Chapter 10, verse 39. Hebrews chapter 11 contrasts with the end of chapter 10. The end of chapter 10 says in this verse, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. That's actually what the obedience of unbelief would do, would draw back to perdition. We are not of those who shrink away. We are not of those who don't believe. 1039, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We keep believing. We persist in believing. We continue to walk in believing. Micah 6 has a passage in it. Don't turn there. It says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk with, walk humbly with your God. Walking, that's in uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8, I'm pretty sure. 
This idea of faith knows your God and walks with your God. The end of Hebrews chapter 10 says, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. They continue to walk with the Lord. Now, faith is, this is what it is. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's, it's the thing that is really grabbed a hold of by the one who believes it. It's the evidence of things not seen. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. What is the obedience of faith? In verse 7, what is the obedience? It's building an ark for a hundred years in the face of probably what would have been thousands and thousands of people mocking and reviling you and saying how judgmental you were for thinking that they deserve to be judged. And they would probably say you're self-righteous for being the only eight people who really think they know who God is going to favor and who God is not going to favor. The obedience of faith knew a person. We call him God. We call him Jehovah. We call him Yahweh. The obedience of faith believed his warning. The obedience of faith Pursued in that labor, I, I just can't even imagine what it would take to build a boat for 120 years. I spend three or four hours working on my fence and I'm ready to die. <laughs> think of this think of this man and his three sons working on this project for those 120 years. Look at what his faith did. We're going to keep reading verse 7. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household. It continues to say, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. His believing the promises of God, his believing the threats of God, it says very plainly in Hebrews 11, resulted in what? He became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now you are probably used to hearing that Abraham was credited with righteousness for believing, which Paul also tells us about in Romans chapter 4. Noah inherits this righteousness according to faith because he lives according to the obedience of faith. Hebrews 11 portrays the Christian Hebrews 11 portrays these men and these women whose mind and soul is fixed rightly on God's rightness, God's priority, God's truthfulness. They know His will. God has a known will and that's why Paul tells you to seek it in Romans 12. Be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove His will. Now, if you're not doing this, I guarantee your, your understanding of His will is being formed by the world. And is being formed by your own intuitions, your own inclinations. These men and women are Glorious examples of those who have a confident knowledge of God and a confident knowledge of His will. And they pursue and they press in their life in doing His will instead of, now there is a will of fear. Sometimes your fear will demand that you obey the will of your fear. That's the obedience of unbelief. Sometimes exhaustion 
will tell you to obey its will. Sometimes idols, pleasures, your favorite entertainment forms, your favorite whatevers, will dissuade you from walking with God, from pursuing your knowledge of His will. You must pursue your knowledge of Him because by His grace, He's given you new life. We've come to know who the Savior is because He took on flesh and He dwelt among us and He revealed Himself to us. Are you loving him and and seeking to know and understand him and walk in close fellowship with him? Are you doing your own thing? You see, disobedience has a will. There is a faith of disobedience. By God's grace, in the graciousness of God, in the kind favor of God, He gave us grace and he gave us apostles so that we could know his will. What happens when you walk in his will, brother and sister? You get to the end of 120 years of ark building and you get in the ark and you survive the flood with with a lonely crowd of seven people and a bunch of animals. You guys, walking a life of faith before we get to glory is hard work and it's discipline of your mind and your soul to know his will. But that's why he gave us apostles. It's why he revealed his will so you would know how to walk. And there is a substance to the things you hope in. There is evidence of the things that you are fixing your eyes and your heart on in Christ. And I plead with you, be serious about knowing your Lord and about walking with your Lord. Our time is short and we have one life to live. Live it. Learning and remembering the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God of grace and love, we praise you. The way before us has been shown to us in plain sight. Oh Lord, give our hearts encouragement to know and to, and to trust in and to walk in your glorious will, dear God. Please give us strength to, to break habits that that take away from our knowledge of your will. Lord, help us to to be able to just rejoice in our great knowledge of the gospel, of your kind giving of the Son. Oh Lord, give us perseverance.